I'm Yolanda Brown and a very warm welcome to LPO Offstage. This is the podcast that takes us behind the scenes with members of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. In today's episode, we're going to find out how the musicians got to where they are now. I'm joined by co-principal trumpet James Fountain, violinist Min Majo and Gareth Newman, who plays the bassoon. Welcome, James, Min and Gareth. Good to see you. Thank you. Hi. It's lovely to be here with you today. Now, James, tell me, when was the very first time you picked up your instrument? I picked up a brass band cornet, which is kind of a shorter version of a trumpet, uh, when I was three years old. Both my parents played for the local Salvation Army brass band. So, yeah, it was an instrument that was always around the house and it became a bit of a toy, really, if I'm honest. I love that sort of the first engagement with an instrument just being purely sort of explorative. I'm going to sort of take us along a journey, if that's okay. So I'm going to ask you, Min, when did you first find your instrument? I started when I was around four years old. Um, My parents aren't musicians, unlike James, they're pharmacists. But I kind of used to sing a lot when I was younger. So they kind of picked up that I was maybe a bit musical. So they kind of helped me on that journey. Very nice. And Gareth, uh, how about yourself? When did you first meet your instrument? Well, funnily enough, I started the violin at the same time as Min did at the age of Ah. four. But I very, very quickly realised it was much too hard for me. So I gave (laughs) it up. And my parents, who were both musicians, took me to a concert when I was about eight. And I was very intrigued by the look of this funny looking instrument at the back of the orchestra right in the middle and my parents happened to know the bassoonist so I was taken to uh, to meet him afterwards and uh, he took one look at me and decided I was much too small because you need quite big hands to play the bassoon but so my first first encounter with the instrument was a bit frustrating but it became then a bit of a tradition to sort of get measured against the instrument and by the time I was nine I was pronounced large enough so (laughs) off off I went (laughs) That must have been a, a lovely moment for you then. From eight, you were intrigued by this instrument. And then to yeah. be told, you know, you have to wait to get big enough. I guess it was I've, a celebratory moment. I felt I'd waited half my life to start oh. playing. So, <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. And actually, a bit of a sidebar, but um, but relevant all the same. You know, I meet so many people um, that say, oh, I wish I'd played a musical instrument growing up. Or I always wanted to play either the saxophone or the violin, but I was told to play another instrument. And it does break my heart when you hear those stories, because it's it's almost like you're finding your voice at that stage and um, there is no hard and fast rule, is there? Not at all, no. I mean, I had played the piano a little bit too, but my parents knew how much fun it was to join in playing with others, um, which you don't do too much on the piano at first. Mm. So they were, they wanted me to start an, another orchestral instrument. And when I started the bassoon, even at the age of nine, I was the only person playing the bassoon in the whole of North Wales. So wow. I got... I got lots of opportunities much sooner than I would have had on anything else. So that was more than enough encouragement to keep me going. Absolutely. Min, what do you think was so important to your parents and to you about starting to play music? My mum's always said it was kind of a really steep learning curve for her because she just had to be that one step ahead of where I was going to (laughs) be in the next year or whatever. Um, But I've always had, you know, fantastic teachers, fantastic support from my family. I've always been quite determined and knew what I wanted to do and that music Mm. was going to be a big part of that. And even at that tender age of of four, you felt that? You felt that music was the way that you wanted to go? My mum tells me that, because obviously I've been singing a little bit when I was younger. And so she thought, okay, she's a bit musical. So she went to the library, browsing through some videos of opera and stuff and thinking, okay, too much death in this one, too much death in this one, too many love trysts in this one. Um, 
And then she found Barbara Seville, which, you know, a bit more comedic, a bit more fun. Yes. And I absolutely loved it. I used to just go around singing to it at home all the time. And so after that, when I heard a violin and knew that I wanted to play it, actually, my parents wanted me to do piano because my brother played piano first and they thought, well, yes. we have a piano. And I refused. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want to play that. I didn't go near it for months. And eventually they were like, OK, maybe she does want to play the She's violin. She's determined. Then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good on go, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. And I'm, I'm, I'm visualising this, uh, this three-year-old blowing into a brass instrument, um, James. What was it like for you growing up and actually seeing your parents playing musical instruments? Is that what attracted you to it? Or did you have a more personal journey? We grew up in the Salvation Army Church and there was always a brass band there every Sunday morning and you look on the on the platform of the church service and you see you know the people in the band and that's what you want to aspire to be next so it was kind of the small hurdles were there and I mm. never really I never experienced an orchestra really until kind of my mid-teens because I grew up in the brass band scene sure. so um, hearing all these stories, you know, Barbara Seville and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm still learning the repertoire now, really. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's kind of, it, it, it was great having those immediate immediate steps to look forward to. How did you learn sort of through your school years and how did you know you wanted to go on and study it further? I mean, uh, for me, with all of the brass band activities, it was a hobby and it was such great oh. fun. Um, the same way you would kind of do your... Um, football practice or other sport activities and stuff as a kid and I never really thought twice about what was going to happen in the future or anything like that it was very immediate I was very close to continuing playing the cornet and going up to a kind of a brass band course in Manchester or at the Welsh College or something like that yeah. and it was a very last minute decision really for me to try and study the trumpet which was kind of quite new to me at that point. And sometimes when you find those forks in the road uh, you never know what, what might have been but we're so glad that you chose the trumpet. Me, me too. <laughs> and Gareth what was your journey sort of bringing you through to sort of college time so we know you've found the bassoon at nine now we're big enough we've made it what happens after that well my story is a bit bit more complicated really because I had as I said lots of opportunities to play and some very good teaching in my teens but my local school in North Wales had no music course at all so I wasn't able to do O-level music um, right. and just at the time I was going into the sixth form uh, trying to choose A-levels Cheatham's in Manchester started up as a specialist music school. So my parents suddenly thought, well, he, if he ha he's done all this practical music, but he doesn't have any academic training yet. Mm. So they, they decided that I'd go there. And my teacher happened to be in Manchester as well. So I was able to have more bassoon lessons more easily than driving all the way from North Wales. And so I went to Cheatham's for two years which was quite an interesting experience in lots of ways because it was still finding its feet as a music school and there were lots of things that uh, hadn't really been sorted out there. Mm. And the most complicated thing for me was I was in an A-level class of four and the really outstanding person in the class was Peter Donohoe, the English pianist, and he was so incredibly gifted in so many ways that I suddenly started thinking, I'm wasting my time even thinking oh. about being a musician. <laughs> So I applied to university to read law. Um, really? Yeah, because I thought a combination of seeing Peter's extraordinary talents and also my fear of competition, the notion of going to a music college and suddenly 
competing with all these other bassoonists um, really put me off. So I went off to read um, law, as I said. And when I got there, I realised I'd made a terrible mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So I finished my first year, passed all my exams, then went back for my second year thinking, grit my teeth, finish the course. But at the beginning of my second year, I thought, well, I really can't do this. Music is calling. Yeah, I I should. So I managed to transfer to Bangor University to do a music degree. Bangor, so I could live at home and save money because obviously extending my student life by a couple of years was going to be quite complicated. Sure. So um, I did an academic music degree which didn't involve playing the bassoon at all. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to have a go at playing because I still love playing, I better try and do it. So I auditioned for a postgrad place at Guildhall to do a, the, their one-year course. Mm. I got onto that, and a couple of weeks before I was due to start, um, in those days, pre-internet and pre um, all sorts of things, <laughs> all the jobs were advertised in the Saturday's Daily Telegraph. So that was the Bible which one yes. consulted. And two weeks before I was due to start in Guildhall, this funny little advert caught my eye for bassoonist in the Gulbenkian Orchestra in Lisbon. And I thought, well, I could do with some some audition experience. So I trotted off to this audition and they said, can you start next week? (gasps) (laughs) So (laughs) wow! I took a deep breath and thought, I know nothing about Portugal. I know no Portuguese, um, but doing the job and getting getting paid for it's got to be better than being a student for yet another year so off I went so that's amazing my goodness oh I want to hear where we go from there I'm going to pause we're in Lisbon with Gareth uh, in this journey (laughs) that is really really amazing I do have a question though did you have your bassoon with you when you were reading law and was it sort of still with you creating music Yes. I mean, I, I forgot to mention that I was so confused after Cheatham's that I, I took a year out and I went to America and I took up the saxophone there and Ooh. the bassoon stayed under the bed. But when, <laughs> I, when I came back to London, I did, yeah, I did still have my bassoon and I played in the university orchestra. So it was kind of ticking over. This story's getting sweeter. There's a saxophone in it. I'm, I'm all for it. OK, I'm going to return back to that. But Min, I would like you to be uh, sort of aligned as we, as we move along. Uh, so you're now finally put your foot down you've got your violin and where does the journey take you now um well I went to independent schools both primary and secondary and I'm was very lucky that I had amazing music departments there but I also did the um junior department at the Royal College of Music which is Mm. like a Saturday school so you go there and you have your violin lessons piano lessons theory orchestra all that sort of thing Um, and I absolutely loved it I loved my Saturdays there it was just the best but yeah, I had Saturday school as well, which I had to miss to go to junior college. Yes. So I had to organise my time quite carefully, but I knew I wanted to do it. So for me, it wasn't, I didn't feel like I was missing anything because it was what I wanted to do. But I basically had to like coordinate with my teachers. So the Friday I had to get the work that was going to be on the Saturday and then I'd have to catch up on the Sunday and then do all the extra homework and then and then restart the week on the Monday, which kind of was a really great discipline for me. And then so after um, school and going through these uh, the Saturday Saturday schooling as well, um, how did you know where you wanted to study? Um, well, I remember at junior college, we had a kind of careers talk for the sixth form and Matthew Barley, the cellist, came to talk to us. And I really clearly remember him saying, if you can imagine yourself doing any other job other than music, do the other job because you need to have such dedication and determination 
you know, if you really want to commit yourself to it, it's not the easiest of jobs um, at times, although, of course, it's amazingly fulfilling and you get to go to all sorts of places and meet amazing people. Um, if your heart's not really in it, maybe it's not for you. And I suppose that goes for a lot of jobs, doesn't it? So, sure. But yeah, after that, I did auditions for music colleges and ended up going to Royal Academy of Music to do my undergrad and mm. then a one-year master's after that. Um, Fantastic. So we're all caught up now. We're in college. I do want to ask about that competition element, actually, that Gareth was alluding to. How did that feel for you, Min? Because there is that element of making music, learning the craft, learning the theory. But when it came to recitals or auditions, was it something that you thrived off of? Or was there a sort of a nervousness there? Um, I have many thoughts about this. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I'm here to hear them. <laughs> um, how long have you got? No. Yeah. Um, I think it's a bit different now because obviously there's a lot of social media, kids are exposed to a lot of different things. But how I felt, I've always tried to, I guess this rivalry you call it, try and think of it instead of like that, look at someone and say, wow, they're doing really well. Mm. How can I use that to inspire me to be as good as them at a certain thing rather than thinking, oh no, like, you know, thinking of it as a threat, just trying to turn it into something positive and say, wow, you know, how are they doing this? And what could I learn from that? I agree with what Min's saying, really, because it's, I think if you spend your whole life worrying about what other people are doing, then you kind of are going to be constantly disappointed because there'll always be someone, you could be at the very, very top and there'll always be someone that you listen to and you'd you'd hope that you're inspired by them. So, yeah, I, I think it's um, using it in a in a positive way to try and gain all the kind of information you can from other people um i mean i grew up with the brass band movement we have like band contests four or five times a year so competition element of things was always a massive a massive part of it but um yeah i think the the best way to improve and the best way to kind of be happy with your lot as it were is to just um you know try and be inspired by everyone you can you can listen to especially when you get to music college i mean the first few weeks of music college i think you learn as much from um walking around the practice rooms and hearing people warming up and and practicing as you do from your professors Mm. so you've just got to be a sponge for the the whole time you're there really and does that inspire practice? I think, you know, as we sort of leave this budding passion element of your journeys, was practice easy when you were growing up? Were you forced to practice, Gareth? Not directly. I mean, as I mentioned earlier on, my parents used to drive me three hours to bassoon wow. lessons each way, three hours there, three hours back. So basically it was a whole Sunday, drive to Manchester, have an hour and a half lesson, drive home. So I certainly felt... Um, sort of oblique pressure as it were to uh, <laughs> justify that commitment on like, I still can't quite believe they that did that for commitment. me but wow. yeah but I think generally speaking we all had to practice more than we wanted to at a certain time in our lives certainly in my case I had the incentive because I was getting well I started getting paid work when I was sort of 13 or something ridiculous like that yes. so if you've got an incentive like that then you certainly want to justify the absolutely your employment yeah I'm just thinking back to when I was at first year at Academy and I'm quite an early bird. So I used to get up really early, practice before the lesson, you know, and end up doing so much. I can't even imagine doing that now. (laughs) (laughs) Gareth, we're we're in Lisbon now. (laughs) How did that progress? 
I felt unbelievably lucky to have a job uh, for, for a start, you know, having skipped the, the sort of secondary training. And the orchestra was run by the Gulbenkian Foundation, which has a lot of money. And the conditions, uh, I didn't quite realise at the time, but the conditions were better than I've ever had since, basically, wow. because, because the orchestra was so heavily subsidised. We only had to do about 60 concerts a year. We used to have seven or eight rehearsals for every concert. We used to do touring in unbelievable style. We did went to the Far East for five weeks and did 17 concerts in five weeks, which <laughs> no British orchestra could even dream of, you know. So I had this unbelievable job but the downside was it was a chamber orchestra so the repertoire was a little bit limited mm -hmm. and it felt a little out on a limb a little bit also being in Portugal even though the life there was wonderful so gradually I started to think well you, you're not a musician for the quality of life you're a musician because you really want to push yourself and find out where you can get to mm -hmm. so I eventually decided that I'd, if I wanted to keep doing it, I needed to move on. And it took me four years, but I did move on. <laughs> and good. Well, funnily enough, going back to the competitive element and, and, and how things don't always work out how you think they might, I came back and did two auditions and got one of them. And a friend of mine did two auditions and he got the other, but neither of us were even seriously considered for the other job. Interesting. So, yeah, so it, it's just a, a very good example of how there is competition, but in the end, you just have to be yourself and hope that you find somewhere that you fit into because yeah. you won't fit in everywhere. It just doesn't work like that. Yes. It's nice to know that philosophy, having heard you speak about the competition in the earlier days mm. and how it sort of pulled you away from music. And did you have to sort of go through a lot of auditions after that stage to get to where you are now? Um, no, I I went to Liverpool from, from Lisbon mm. and then to London. I, mean, I only live in places beginning with L, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and I, I had to audition for the, the next job in London, which was the BBC Concert Orchestra. But... Because that was a principal bassoon job, as soon as you have that sort of stamp on your forehead, uh, principal, then suddenly everybody else starts ringing you up, asking you to play principal in other orchestras uh -huh. because you've had the seal of approval, you know, by getting one of those jobs. Yeah. And so a few years in the concert orchestra gave me the confidence to freelance quite extensively because the concert orchestra was a wonderful job to have for a little while, but Again, the repertoire was on the limited side. Mm. So because I was getting a reasonable amount of work, I, I was bold or stupid enough, as my, all my colleagues told me, I was completely stupid to give up a salary and a pension for freelancing. But I did, and it worked out, luckily. And do you think that that's because of your musical taste, that you wanted that variety, you wanted to be able to experience wider repertoire? Is that what drove you? I think my year in America gave me a very positive outlook on life in that I think Americans at their best are enormously optimistic people and mm. very energetic. And if it taught me one thing, it taught me that if I were ever found myself doing something that I wasn't really, really enjoying, I should move on. Oh. I shouldn't just stick with it. And Min, we're talking about that transition now from college through to the professional musician life. Uh, where where have you gone since from college? Where did you go next? 
Um, well, in my kind of final years of studying, I started to do auditions and apply for a couple of schemes, one of them being the LPO's um, FOIL Future First scheme. Big mm. shout out to the education yes. department. <laughs> you are a yeah. FOIL Future First. Tell us a bit <laughs> yeah. more about the scheme and what brought you to it and what did you get from it? What attracted me to the scheme was kind of the mentoring aspect of it. You get... I think it's eight hours of coaching with principal players throughout the year. So I had some lessons with um, Peter, our leader. So you can take orchestral excerpts, kind of the standard ones, or if you get a rogue one that you've never seen before, it's kind of great to get some guidance on that. But generally, the scheme's really well-rounded because you do your own chamber projects within the group and you work with the education department and with the composers on their scheme as well. So you get to meet all the players and I think... Sometimes you can get a bit in your head about, oh, you know, world-renowned orchestra, world-renowned musicians. But actually, you know, we're humans too and we just like a chat and a cup of tea and a biscuit, you know. So, yeah, so it's just good to always remember, especially when you do trials, just to kind of have that reassurance that, you know, everyone's um, kind of, they want the best from you, you know, so... And were you choosing those schemes as a way to grow? I guess it's a bit of both, but to grow professionally, or were you also sort of looking for a way to to get in? How do you get into an orchestra? Generally speaking, you apply to do an audition, and auditions vary all over the UK, and even you know comparing the UK to say America or on the continent as well in Europe, there's slightly different processes, but. Here you get audition and then if you succeed, you get put on a trial period, um, which can last a year, two years. I've heard of someone's lasting for eight years. Eight years trial. Yep. Gareth's nodding. Which is a shocker. Wow. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, it's basically like a process of elimination where people kind of figure out whether your style suits with the orchestra and, and that sort of thing. And then hopefully you get the job at the end. Um, uh, so, so I'm still flawed on the eight years. James, with the, <laughs> with the trials, what does it feel like as the musician knowing you're on trial? Is there is there rest? I mean, the, the word trial makes it sound like you're being assessed all the time. So if you were on trial for that long, is it a relaxing experience? Are you enjoying making music at that point? I, I couldn't imagine being on trial for, for that. And that amount yeah. of time that would, um, yeah, you'd be totally um, self-analyzing every minute of <laughs> every day. Um, I, I had kind of two experiences, once with the RPO, which was very different because I was um, a student still at the Guildhall. So um, everything that was coming with that trial was completely new and I, I never even dreamed of the job coming my way. So it was more kind of, mm. you just took the work that was coming your way and used it as a learning experience. Um, when I trial for the LPO, yeah, I, again, I think like I touched on earlier on, you can only control the things that you can control. So my way of approaching it was very much kind of be yourself. And, and I think it is sometimes easier in a way with a principal position because you can come in and just play your way and touch wood they like it if they don't then that's fine and I think to cope with the kind of the mindset of being on trial as well you've got to almost flip it round and and realize that okay whilst you're on trial for the position you can mm. almost feel as if it's the orchestra is on trial for you and and Absolutely. if it doesn't work there's no point being somewhere if every day you go to work and you don't enjoy it or it doesn't feel natural so um Absolutely. Yeah. that that's just a little way of kind of flipping that nervousness that, yeah. round as well 
which helps for me. Yeah, they've got to treat you. They've got to treat you because, yeah, you've got to want to be there. I like that. That's shifting the power there, James. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's all about you. (laughs) (laughs) With that philosophy then, does anything in your journey feel like failure or does it just feel like it's part of, of the direction that you're meant to be going on? You can't ever think five years ahead. In, in the music world, you don't know where you're going to be in five years time. And, you know, concentrating on, on the immediate present is probably the best way. I mean, I don't think it ever feels like failure. It needs to be the right fit for both parties. And yeah, five years down the line, you may find out that it wasn't the right fit anyway. And Min, so how did you then transition into finding the LPO? Was it through the Foil Future First scheme or was it outside of that? Um, well, I had quite a big gap in between. So I did the full Future First scheme in 2014-15. And then at the same time, I was kind of doing trials in Birmingham and Liverpool, kind of all around the country. So you really. can do multiple trials at the same time? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh. If you can kind of manage your diary all right, then, it's, then, it's, then you can, definitely. Wow. And I was just basically freelancing in London. And then... I got a job in the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic for just under two years. And then after that, I joined LPO. Um, I see. I'm actually technically still on probation. So if you don't see me in a couple of weeks, you'll know why. (laughs) (laughs) Is probation the same as trial? No. So after the trial, if you get offered the job, then that's great. And then um, in the LPO, we have a year probation after that just to double check I guess I see. <laughs> um, make sure you behave yourself exactly yeah <laughs> just check there weren't, there weren't any character flaws hiding in there um, yes no uh so yeah that's for a year in the LPO and then you become a, a proper full-time member and it's amazing because there's three of us in the first violins who are foil future first alumni so it's really great <sighs> kind of validation for the scheme yes um, absolutely. and for the, the whole education department as well um really good Gareth, I need to bring you back to London within this story. I'm Mm. sort of floating between Liverpool and other L's at the moment. How did you make your way into the London Philharmonic Orchestra? I suppose the LPO is actually the orchestra I'd worked with least because it had a very stable bassoon section there and they didn't need very many extras. But suddenly, sadly, they started having some illness problems Mm. around about 2005. And I suddenly started coming in just because they needed people, you know. And I remember thinking very quickly, my goodness, isn't this nice? You know, much as as I've enjoyed freelancing, if ever I were to think about taking a job, it would be here. Yes. Sadly, the illness, one of the players had to retire and... It took a little while to sort that out. I thought sort out his financial position, and by two thousand and eight, um, that was sorted out. But I'd been working with the orchestra pretty regularly then for two or three years, and they decided, amazingly enough for me, um, to cut out the normal process and just offer me the job, oh. because I suppose I had been on trial effectively for sure um, for for that amount of time, and um, so I I just bit their hands off and said yes. <laughs> Gareth, this story is quite an emotional one for me. I have to say, it's been really nice to hear you share the journey. <laughs> Honestly, it's a bit 
bit of a Hollywood. I'm hearing the soundtrack and everything. I mean, to hear you speak about the idea of competition and, you know, it, how it turned you off of music and sort of made you go in a different direction to come back and be freelance, be sitting in an orchestra finally that had repertoire that you liked, that sort of mm. offered everything you liked. And then to have the job offered to you, honestly, mm. um, I'm very inspired by, by your story. It's just truly beautiful. <laughs> Well, I still can't believe my luck, really. <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. Sorry, Gareth. Oh, well, we're all in floods of tears here, in case you, you can't hear. But we need to get James into the LPO. Mm. Uh, uh, we're, we're, sorry, I've confused myself for a minute. James, how did you transition then from college to finding the LPO? In my first year at the Guildhall, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra's principal trumpet job came up and was advertised and it was on encouragement from the fellow principal trumpet here at the LPO and my teacher at the Guildhall, Paul Beniston, that I mm. should apply for it. And I'd never thought of doing that as a first year student, never entered my mind to certainly not to apply for a principal trumpet job. So he very kindly pointed me in the right direction with the RPO and wrote a lovely cover letter on my application to make up for the complete lack of experience on my CV which encouraged them to give me an audition the audition for that job was like I said just towards the end of my first year beginning of my second year and I flunked the audition I was nowhere near good enough and it didn't go as planned but I obviously made some kind of impression on the panel because about six months or so later um, they'd gone through the trial process and they needed a trumpet player for a film music tour to China playing all John Williams music and stuff like that and they very kindly thought of me and I got the call to go in as a guest principal and then during the week-long tour um, obviously given it being kind of film music and John Williams and there was quite a lot for the trumpet to do and after the second or third concert the trumpet section kept me behind on stage afterwards and offered me a trial during the week so I then trialled for uh, two or three months with the orchestra officially and was appointed then as principal trumpet, I think it was November 2014. So yeah, and then I did five years, just over five years with the RPO. Amazing memories, fantastic orchestra. They were they were really supportive of me. But as Gareth said, I mean, what you spend five minutes in the LPO and it's such a friendly atmosphere and the music making, the quality is so high. And when the position became available here, to sit in the same section with my teacher and share a principal job with him was something I couldn't really refuse. And Anne McEnany, the other trumpet player in the section, was also a teacher at the Guildhall. So it, like I said earlier on, it's just nice to almost go full circle with it. So yeah, it was an opportunity I, I couldn't really refuse. And Gareth, how, how does it feel now? Um, do you still get that feeling that you got when you thought, gosh, I'd, lo- I'd, love, to, I'd love this to be my job? Oh yeah, I mean, I go to go to work every day with a smile on my face, and uh, because yeah, I was fifty five when I got the job, and I thought, mm. well, if if I get ten years out of this, I'll be lucky. And I'm a, and I'm now sixty eight, so I'm still here. Brilliant. But I'm extremely conscious of the fact that we are not salaried, secure musicians in that sense. So if mm. our if our standard drops, then there's no way the orchestra can afford to keep us on. 
because we can't carry passengers. It's not that sort of organisation. So my colleagues are under very, very strict instructions to um, tip me the wink before they start, um, <laughs> before I start hearing <laughs> through more official channels that maybe you know, maybe the time is up, you know. Oh. But, yeah, we've got your responsibility to yourself and to all your colleagues to to pull your weight. Honestly, thank you so much for sharing sharing your journey so in-depth and so passionately. I know that you will have inspired the listeners as well as me. And also, I wish you all the very best for the rest of your careers, enjoying being professional musicians. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks thank you. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to James Fountain, Min Majo and Gareth Newman for their insight into their paths to becoming musicians and what it takes to be a part of a leading orchestra. Thanks so much for listening and please do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage, which we're calling Courage. 